1: Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Luke. Praise to the God who reigns above. Luke is written so that we might know we have a reliable faith. The events written about in the book. Were eyewitness accounts that Luke researched for himself and wrote down for all to see. We have seen that Jesus, the Savior of the world, was born to a poor carpenter family in the city of Nazareth. He grew up and lived a normal life, doing woodwork till the age of 30 when he started his public ministry, calling all people to repent of their sins and turn to God. Jesus performed many miracles, healing the sick, the blind, the paralyzed, even casting out demons that had gone into people. The scribes and Pharisees were outraged when Jesus claimed to be the Messiah and offered forgiveness of sins. They were especially angered when Jesus and his disciples had dinner at a tax collector's house. We will continue to see the interactions of the Pharisees and scribes with Jesus as we join Pastor Will in Luke chapter 6, verse 1.
0: When well, we're at this point in... Luke 6, the religious leaders, they may have been grumbling before, but by now they have thrown down the gauntlet. They are not happy with Jesus. They're saying, we are not happy with how you've set yourself in opposition to us, Jesus. That is not very messianic of you. We're the good guys. You should be on our side. You should be getting behind our plan. You should not be giving us a, you know, a hard time. And so as they continue to follow Jesus around in chapter 6, we're going to see that Jesus has no intention of bowing the knee to them. He's going to keep on doing what his father tells him to do. And so as we see them grow more stubborn, may it show us the dangers of having bad religion and sticking with it. We want to be pliable to the Lord. So chapter 6, pick it up in verse 1. And it came to pass on the second Sabbath after the first that he, Jesus, went through the cornfields and his disciples plucked the ears of corn and did eat, rubbing them in their hands. And certain of the Pharisees said unto them, Why do you do that which is not lawful to do on the Sabbath days? And Jesus answering said to them, said, Have you not read so much as this, what David did when himself was hungered? And they which were with him, how he went into the house of God and did take and eat the showbread and gave also to them that were with him, which it is not lawful to eat, but for the priests alone? He said unto them that the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. Now, We see a situation here. It gives us a time frame. We don't know what that is, but it just means it's shortly after the events of chapter 5. So the Pharisees haven't gone home. They're still in Capernaum. They're trying to find some way to discredit Jesus. And Jesus is walking through. It says cornfield in the King James, but they didn't grow the corn that we're, like corn and the cob corn that we're used to. It just means grain fields. They grow corn there now. They didn't back in Jesus's day. But the grain fields would either be a wheat field or a barley field. We don't know which one it means here. And as they're going through these grain fields, feels his disciples they plucked the top of the grain off and they did eat it by rubbing it with their hands and popping it into their mouth. Deuteronomy chapter 23:25 says this is something that was perfectly permissible for Jewish people to do. Deuteronomy 23:25 it's not a very american law but it is a biblical principle. Deuteronomy 23:25 says when you come into the standing corn of your neighbor then you may pluck the ears with your hand. But you'll not move a sickle into your neighbor's standing corn. So if you are just walking around, you end up going through your neighbor's property, and he's got some, an apple orchard or a vineyard or a grain field, you can grab some and eat. Now, you can't put it in a bag. You can't bring a tool to harvest it. But if you're just going through their property and you see something there and you're hungry, you can grab it and eat it. Now, again, that's not a very American ideal. If somebody does that in your yard, you're probably going to call the police. Sometimes we can get confused and think the way we do things here is the way the Bible talks about them. Now I realize we're not under the law. That's a civil law to govern a theocratic nation like Israel was. I get that. But there's a principle there. And I bring this up, and I know I'm gonna step on some toes, but I hear Christians say things like this, and they should never come out of a Christian's mouth. My taxes pay for your welfare. My hard work pays for your this, this, and this. That should never be coming out of our mouths because they're not your taxes. They're not your money. It's not your earning. The Lord gives you the ability to work and he's the one that provides for you. And we should never be saying those things. Two reasons. The one I just gave. And secondly, you're not winning anybody to Christ by those statements. You are creating shame. You are creating a situation where you stand in opposition to them over something that isn't the gospel. Now, if we're going to offend somebody, let it be the gospel that offends them. Let it be the fact that we proclaim that Jesus is Lord. Let it be the fact that we proclaim that Christ is the only way. Let it not be that we proclaim the American way of doing things. Now, again, if somebody's in my backyard, I have, I have, I have orange trees and lemon trees. If they want to grab a lemon, they can. If I see them with a bag, I'm calling the police. But you get the principle we're not to be greedy people with our stuff. And we're not to hold on to it so tightly like it's mine. You can't have my stuff. I am not necessarily in favor of the way our country does welfare. I think the way the Bible talks about it is the best way. I'm not in favor of that. You don't have to like our welfare system. But be careful what you say. Because you are representative of Christ of wherever you are. And that does not represent anything Scripture says. Maybe very American, but it doesn't represent what Scripture says. And when push comes to shove, we are Christians first. The problem, of course, is not this. They were allowed to do that. But rubbing it together would produce a gum-like product that you could chew on, and it would take the edge off your hunger. So the disciples, they were okay doing this. The problem was the day they did it, for it happened on the second Sabbath after the first. So it happened on the Sabbath day. So when the Pharisees saw them doing this, it says some of them came to the disciples, and they said, why do you eat that which is not lawful to do on the Sabbath days? You say, why would it not be lawful? Well, Scripture didn't say anything about this, but the rabbis taught that when you took the grain and you rubbed it together in your hands and you popped it in your mouth, it constituted reaping, threshing, winnowing, and preparing food all in one act. And therefore, it was work and it was illegal. And it was well-defined. Everybody knew you didn't do that. So here's the kicker. Disciples knew this. I don't imagine they just walked into the field and all did it. I'm pretty sure they probably saw Jesus do it one day. And as Jesus did it, they thought, well, if he's doing it, I guess it's all right. So these guys, as they're seeing it, they probably had apoplexy. Like, this isn't even a complicated issue. This is something we taught you guys. The rabbis are united on this. What are you doing, you dumb Galileans, uneducated country folk? Thankfully, Jesus answers for his disciples. And Jesus answering them said, have you not read so much as this? what David did when he himself was hungry and those that were with him, what did he do? Well, how he went into the house of God and did take and eat the showbread and gave it also to them that were with him. And then he points out, which it is not lawful to eat, except if you're a priest. Oh, now they've got a problem. David did this and they didn't give him a hard time. He's their beloved king. Later, Jesus will tell the religious leaders that one of the main reasons they were off is because they didn't know the scriptures. And as Christians, do we have a love for the concept of scripture? Or do we love what the scripture actually says? I know many people who are loyal to the Bible. They don't know a lick of what it says, though. And they're not living it out. I don't want to be like these guys. But it can happen to us when the idea of the word of God is more important to me than actually applying those words to my life. I love how Jesus takes them back to the scripture because the answers will always be found when we do that. If we turn to man's ideas, we're gonna get confused. But when we go back to the scripture, we can find understanding. So what scripture is Jesus quoting here? Well, this is 1 Samuel 21, so let's turn there. Now, the way the story goes, David's on the run from King Saul. Saul is trying to kill him. David's trying to get away. He's got some of his loyal men with him. And they're trying to get away from Saul too. And they end up, they're out of food. They need food. And so they come, Verse 1, "...then came David to Nob, the city of Nob, to Ahimelech the priest." So he comes to the city of Nob where the tabernacle was at the time. There's no temple yet. "...and to the priest Ahimelech. And when Ahimelech saw him, he was afraid at the meeting of David and said to him, "'Why are you alone and nobody's with you?' Like, you're here, obviously, you're on a special mission, kind of wondering if I'm the mission." See, Saul had been killing people who disagreed with him left and right. This guy, Himelech was a good man and a godly man. And he thought, man, the king's finally lost it. He's coming for me. He sent his main guy, his main general to come after me. So David, he says unto Himelech the priest, well, the king has commanded me a business. He's giving me basically a secret mission here. And he has said unto me, let no man know anything of the business whereabout. I'm to send you. I can't tell you why I'm here. And what I have commanded you. And so I've appointed my servants to such and such a place. You know, I've got, I can't tell you my mission. Yeah, because I'm running from the guy who I said gave me the mission. So now, therefore, he says to him, I can't tell you the mission, but I need help. What is under your hand? What do you, what do you got here to eat? Give me five loaves of bread in your hand or whatever you got here. If you don't have five, give me whatever you got. Well, the priest answered David and said, there's no common bread under my hand. I don't have any bread that hasn't been dedicated to the Lord. The equivalent maybe might be somebody coming here and going, we need money. Anybody got money? We need money to help this guy out. And, and we go, nah, nobody has, it. everybody check their pockets. There's no money. They say, well, what about the offering? Well, wait a second. That's people's offerings to God. We have to, we have to figure out what he wants us to do with that first. I mean, it'd be a similar type of situation. Now, obviously, we'd be willing to help somebody out if there was a need. That's what we do all the time. We have a benevolence ministry. But the idea here is that bread was only supposed to be for the Lord. This is people's offerings. They're not just supposed to dole it out and do whatever they treat it like common bread. So he says, I don't have any common bread under my hand, but there is the hallowed bread, the bread that's been dedicated to the Lord. And so he's thinking to himself, okay, I'm not supposed to give it to them, but maybe I can work this out. And so he says, if the young men have kept themselves, at least from women, you know, if they're ritually pure, I can do this maybe. David answered the priest and said to him, of a truth, women have been kept from us about these three days since I came out. We've been on the run. And you know, what he's thinking. So yeah, they haven't been with any women. And the vessels of the young men are holy. These guys are ritually clean. They're ritually pure. And the bread is in a manner common, yea. I mean, it's still regular bread, though it were sanctified this day in the vessel. So the priest said, yeah, I can give you some of that. So he gave him the hallowed bread, for there was no bread there except the show bread that was taken from before the Lord to put hot bread in the day when it was taken away. What is the show bread? Turn to Leviticus 24. It's also called the bread of the presence. Leviticus 24, verses five through nine describe how special this bread was. When God's instructing Moses to instruct the priests, And she'll take fine flour and bake twelve cakes thereof. The idea was twelve loaves of bread. They had those big circular loaves, and they would be symbolic for each loaf for a tribe. And so, take two tenths deals shall be in one cake, and how big it's going to be. And you should set them in two rows, six on a row and upon the pure table before the Lord. So six and six, and they put them on the table of showbread, the golden table that's in the holy place right before the presence of God. And the symbolism there is that God's people are right in front of him always, that he always sees them, and his heart is to provide for them and to bless them. That's the idea. Well, here's the rule. You should put pure frankincense upon each row, that it may be on the bread of the memorial, even an offering made by fire unto the Lord. So it's for the Lord, not for people. Every Sabbath he shall set it in order before the Lord continually, being taken, donated from the children of Israel by an everlasting covenant. But what do they do after it's been sitting there? Well, it shall be Aaron's and his sons. So after every Sabbath, every week, then Aaron and his sons, they can eat it there in the holy place, in the tabernacle for it is most holy unto him of the offerings of the Lord made by fire by our perpetual state. So every Sabbath, freshly baked bread from donations from the people would replace the week old bread. And the priests would would there they would, that were there working that time would eat it as part of their meal. It would be part of breakfast, lunch, dinner, along with the meat that was brought as offerings too. That was their food while they worked. Now Leviticus 22 tells us they were allowed to bring leftovers home to their family and to anyone who worked for them. But they weren't allowed to share it with non-priests. They weren't allowed. You know, if somebody came over and they weren't family, you know, or they didn't work for him, they could not eat of it. So why does he give it to David? Well, the questions that the high priest asked show why he made an exception. If we turn over to Leviticus twenty-two, we see here that God explains why only the priest was allowed to eat it. Look in verse fifteen of Leviticus twenty-two. Now this whole section here is talking about things that have been devoted to the Lord and their portion to eat. It says that the reason they're only supposed to eat it, verse 15, is so that they do not profane the holy things of the children of Israel when they offer them unto the Lord. So the things that have been dedicated to God don't become common again. They don't just become regular everyday bread. In other words, they're dedicated for a special use. They should only be used for special things. And so the guy's thinking to himself, okay, the high priest, he's going, all right, others weren't allowed to eat it because it's not everyday bread. It's been devoted to the Lord. We perform rituals every day to ensure we're clean and we're devoted to the Lord. If these guys are devoted to the Lord too and they have a need, then we can, for a special occasion, give it to them. And so he has just one question. If you guys are, are not profane, if you're not unclean, I can give it to you since it's a special need. And they said, yeah, we're not unclean. And he's like, okay, I'll give it to you. So he made an exception because the heart behind the law was the idea wasn't to be used for just common use. It was only to be for special things. So since David and his men had a special need and they were ceremonially pure, he looked for the heart behind the law and made sure that nothing would be defiled by generously giving them the bread that was intended for him and for his family. People ask me frequently when we go through the New Testament, why did Jesus allow his disciples or why did Jesus break the Sabbath? And I tell him, I say, he didn't violate God's commands about the Sabbath ever. He never violated anything God said about the Sabbath ever. However, he did violate the rabbi's interpretation of the Sabbath. And by using the example of David, Jesus is showing the Pharisees how unmerciful and how out of touch with God's heart they were. They only knew the letter of the law. They didn't understand why God gave it. In another gospel, he'll say, When you figure out what I will have mercy and not sacrifice means, come back and ask me this question. (laughs) Because they just didn't get it. They knew all the rules, but they didn't understand why they were obeying the rules, and therefore they couldn't understand why this wasn't a violation of the rule. Does that make sense? In fact, what they're thinking in response to this is, who is Jesus thinking he is telling us we're wrong? Who does Jesus think he is telling us our interpretation of Scripture is wrong? Well, Jesus is going to tell them, I'm the one who made the Sabbath. I think I know it better than anybody. And he said unto them that the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. The word Lord there means master, ruler, boss, owner. He goes, I created the Sabbath. If anyone understood how it was supposed to work, it was Jesus. Now, as it says here, and he said unto them, and he finishes his piece about David, lets him stew on it for a bit. And then he goes, oh, and by the way, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. that's why I can tell you you're wrong. He brings it up because they've already started this conversation back when the paralyzed man was lowered to the roof, remember? This is just a few weeks ago where all their beef started with Jesus. The man's lowered down and what does Jesus say to the man who's lowered down to the roof? Man, you guys all have such amazing faith. I'm gonna heal this guy. Is that what he says? He says, man, your sins are forgiven you. And that starts the grumbling who does this guy think he is? Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus goes, you know, you're on to something. Which is easier to say. Man, your sins be forgiven you? I can walk up to anybody and say that. Who knows if I'm correct? I can't prove it. But on the other hand, if I walk up to somebody and say, rise, get up and walk, go home, to somebody who can't walk, they better get up and walk or everybody knows I'm a phony. So Jesus goes, I wouldn't say this just to say it. I'm going to heal this guy in a minute and prove to you who I am. But like, why are you on my case about this? I have authority to do this. He says, so that you may know the son of man has authority to forgive sins on earth. But he get up and walk and go home. And then he does. And they're just mind blown. They're like, what? That's too much. That's too crazy. That's too incredible to believe that God would become a man, that God's in front of us right now. We can't believe that. So it's almost like Jesus goes, "Uh, guys, the reason I can tell you the Sabbath, your view, you've got the Sabbath wrong is because have you forgotten I'm the one who made it? Have you forgotten who made the Sabbath and who I told you I already am a few weeks ago? And while Jesus' answer isn't a miracle this time to back it up, it surely left them stunned. He said it again. Do you believe the gall of this man? He can't be God. That's impossible. But it's not. Jesus took on our humanity 100% and he lived his earthly life as a man is supposed to live it. Not as God would do it, but as a man would do it with God's help. But he never ceased to be God when he did that. Never, not one ounce of being God. And we must understand that cardinal truth of Christianity if we're ever gonna grow in our relationship with the Lord. And if you're there and you think, well, I think Jesus is just a good teacher. I don't know about this whole God thing. You're gonna struggle getting to know the Lord. I used an example this morning. I don't know if it's a good one, but if I take the, you know, presume my wife is a computer genius, but she's not. And I keep acting towards her as if I think she is when she's not. We're going to have a hard time. Honey, did you fix the computer? Sweetie, you know, I don't even know how to turn the thing on. I'm disappointed. Why why didn't you, you know, you just don't want to do it. What do you mean? I don't know. I don't understand how they work. You know, we're going to have a hard time relating to each other. Jesus' deity is a cardinal truth of Christianity. And it's something you need to embrace and believe if, if you're going to grow in your walk with the Lord. In verse 6. And it came to pass also on another Sabbath, and this is where Luke is linking these two events together. He says also because these two situations go together. They're telling the same story. They communicate a point Luke's trying to make. It came to pass also on another Sabbath that he entered into the synagogue and taught. And that was Jesus' habit. But like usual, even though people are coming to hear Jesus teach, who else is coming? People that want to be healed, right? And so it says that there was a man whose right hand was withered. Now, withered means shrunken and, and paralyzed. He couldn't move it. There was some, something done to it as damaged that he couldn't move it. What's interesting is that this word means damage from an accident. So it wasn't a birth defect. It wasn't something that happened, you know, that he was born with. He wasn't always this way. At one point in time, the thing worked fine. But something happened, an accident happened that damaged his hand, and now he had lost use of it. Now, when you usually see someone with a disability like that, our first thoughts are usually compassionate, right? I mean, oh man, that must stink, or I wonder how that happened, or I wonder if there's something I can do to help. You know, I might see somebody like that and go, hey, let me help you put that in your cart. You know, I mean, you see that, and your first natural reaction should be compassion, right? Not these guys. (laughs) And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him whether he would heal on the Sabbath day. They don't even see the guy. I mean, they know he's there, but all they're doing is watching Jesus. What's he gonna do? Is he gonna heal him? Because it says that they might find an accusation against him. Now, there's an untranslated word here that would indicates that they were actually separate from the rest of the crowd. You know, here's the synagogue, and everybody's sitting down listening to Jesus, and these guys are off in their little corner just watching him. I mean, they're that upset with him at this point. They don't even want to associate with anybody who might be there and like Jesus, you know, they're watching like a hound ready to pounce on its prey. And, and this was kind of one of the ways they'd hoped they'd catch Jesus doing something wrong. You know, we, he's not allowed to heal on the Sabbath, and we're going to see if he does it today. And they were, they, now they have their chance to catch him. So here Jesus is. He's got them watching him, their scrutiny, and their little separate group. And here's this guy. What's he going to do? Well, he's going to do what God, who knows everything and never makes a mistake, always does. He's going to do the right thing. And so in verse 8, it says. But he knew their thoughts and said to the man which had the withered hand, Rise up and stand forth in the midst. And he arose and stood forth. Now we need to point out something very important first here. That word where it says he knew their thoughts is a very unique word. It's in the pluperfect tense in the Greek, which is something most of you have probably never heard of. We don't use it in English. We don't have a pluperfect tense. It's rare and unique to the Greek language. The pluperfect tense, I need to read the definition because it's rare even in the Greek language, It indicates a completed action from the past whose results from that completed action exist in the past. Everybody confused yet? It's a completed action that happened beforehand with results that existed beforehand. So this has nothing to do with the present, and yet it's not just a reference to the past. It's a past action that had effects in the past. Gotcha? So we're not taking a snapshot of the past, but a completed action in the past that had results for a while in the past. What am I saying? What I'm saying is that Jesus didn't just supernaturally know what they're thinking right now. He knew long before this day happened what they would think, and he had already made a plan back then how he would deal with it. He knew their thoughts before they thought them today. There was a point somewhere in the past that he knew what was going to happen this day, a point somewhere in the past that based on what he knew, he decided what he was going to do. So this isn't a situation here where Jesus is just really good at reading people. Nor does it mean that as he's there, the father says, hey son, these guys are upset and they're thinking you're going to do this. No, 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 no. It means that Jesus knew about this this day before he ever became a man. And that makes this one of the strongest statements of the deity of Christ in all of Scripture. Only God can know those things. I don't know things before they happened. Every once in a while, the Lord might lay something on your heart and He might give you a warning. Hey, maybe don't go out tonight, or hey, don't do this. Or, you know, I, you know, anyway, I got lots of examples I shared in the morning and I ended up going way late. But, you know, there's times where maybe the Lord puts something on your heart and He gives you some advanced warning. But that's not even what we're talking about here. Most of the things we face, they just happen. We go, okay, Lord, what do I do? And we have to trust him for direction. That's not what's going on here. This is something Jesus knew about in the past, had decided how he's going to handle it in the past, and now he's here. It's one of the strongest statements of deity of Christ, because God is the only one who knows everything. No man can know things like he knew things here.
1: Jesus knew where the hearts and minds of the Pharisees were. He knew they had not only rejected him as Savior and Messiah, but also rejected God's clear word being presented to them. And yet, Jesus lovingly called out their heart problem and invited them into a deeper, closer relationship with God that was above their own current understanding of God the Father. Jesus still calls us today to surrender our own understanding of how we view God to see that He is so much bigger than our own understanding of Him. We cannot confine God to the small boxes of our minds. The knowledge of him is vaster than the oceans put together, wider than the universe. He is above our comprehension. So, we ought to let him tell us who he is with no presuppositions, no pretense. Let God dictate who he is through his word. Listen and accept it. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at four zero seven five two three zero eight zero zero during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app Available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.